Good afternoon, and thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of international affairs and national security. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This afternoon, Tobias Brandt will be joining the podcast to discuss pushing back ideological support for militant Islamism. Tobias Brandt is a Brent Scowcroft Award Fellow at the Aspen Strategy Group, a policy program of the Aspen Institute in Washington, D.C. He recently completed his master's degree in statecraft and international affairs at the Institute of World Politics, graduating as salutatorian of the class of 2019. Throughout his studies, Mr. Brandt specialized in U.S. foreign policy toward the Middle East, terrorism, and the transatlantic relationship. In his final semester at IWP, he wrote an honors thesis on pushing back terrorist propaganda and countering ideological support for militant Islamism. Originally from Germany, Mr. Brent received a bachelor's degree in Middle Eastern Studies from the University of Hamburg, where his studies focused on Al-Qaeda's propaganda strategy. Our conversation today deals with the topic of his honor thesis, counter-terrorist messaging strategy. Tobias, welcome and thank you for joining the IWP podcast today. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. My first question for you is, what does countering ideological support for terrorism mean? And why is it so important? Uh, yeah, thank you. So when we talk about counterterrorism, we often think about you know, special operations forces or intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance measures. Um, but I'm always reminded of Dr. Lanchowski's metaphor when he describes America's approach to counterterrorism. Uh, he said something uh, like you know, our wars can be compared to um, trying to eradicate mosquitoes in your backyard and you invite all your friends over and um, arm them with shotguns and uh, you shoot you shoot mosquitoes all afternoon and you will get a few mosquitoes uh, but there's a problem and that's a puddle that's um, going on in the backyard in the, in the background and um, that's a, a, the spawning of new mosquitoes and we're doing very little about that that's how he describes it you know, the, the U.S. military has an impressive capability to take terrorists off the battlefield, but new recruits quickly replace them, and then it's really hard to say that we're winning the war on terror that way. And I think in our post-9-11 fight against terrorism, one vital aspect that still uh, is largely neglected is countering ideological support for terrorism, or CIST. That's to say, uh, to push back the terrorists' arguments and delegitimize them internationally, uh, to diminish this breeding ground that's common to uh, all militant Islamist terrorist groups, uh, their ideology. And so in my thesis that I wrote, I dealt with um, militant Islamist terrorist ideology, but of course there are many kinds of terrorism out there. Um, and, you know, this topic, you know, there's many names for it. You could, you could say it's uh, public diplomacy, strategic communication, the battle of ideas, or information warfare, you know. Um, but I think the term countering ideological support for terrorism or CIST is, uh, is quite precise because it specifically goes into what we're trying to do. Uh, it goes back to the early uh, 2000s under President Bush when um, people like uh, Robert Satloff from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, for example, did a lot of valuable work on this topic. But I think most of this has not received the proper attention. Um, CIST is perhaps the most underdeveloped part of non-kinetic counterterrorism. And this is troubling, I think, because 
It's especially the ideology, you know, that's a common denominator and recurring theme sort of, if you will, for many of these uh, groups. And while certain new ideologues, uh, we could say are added to the catalog, I think the main arguments largely remain the same and are merely refreshed by modern terrorists. You can see this in the way Al-Qaeda or ISIS uses uh, the, these ideologues in their easings, the electronic magazines such as Inspire or Dabiq or Rumiya. Uh, um, they frequently publish the writings or statements of influential thinkers like Abdul Azam or Abu Musa Basuri. Um, and so if we look at our, uh, how we've fared so far, I think it's fair to say that we've created more and not less terrorists and so I think this is an, an opportunity to refocus our efforts on countering underlying drivers for terrorism. And ideology is uh, a key one, although it's a controversial one. Um, but if we don't do this, if we don't aim to counter this ideology and the means through which it's disseminated, I don't think things will uh, get better. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. So if we uh, look at one of the lessons that we hear from IWP, uh, the Chinese military strategist Sun Tzu said over 2,500 years ago that to subdue one's enemy without fighting is the acme of skill. And so perhaps instead of killing our enemies, we should focus on convincing them of the futility of their plans in the first place and destroy the appeal of their ideology to others. So essentially to uh, take the rhetorical offensive uh, in countering this ideology, which might seem somewhat counterintuitive because uh, countering seems to imply defense, right? Um, but you know, if you go back to another brilliant military mind of the past, uh, Clausewitz said that defense is not simply a shield, but it's a shield made up of well-directed blows. And so in that sense, I think uh, we ought to go on the rhetorical attack and push back against terrorists because we can't simply disengage and sort of leave this ideological side of battlefield for the enemy to exploit undeterred. And just the next question, um, basing it off of the meaning of countering ideological support for terrorism and just the importance behind that, how would you describe the ideology of militant Islamists and how do Islamist terrorists use propaganda? I guess in other words, what is it that we aim to counter? Yes, yeah, so whether it's Al-Qaeda or ISIS or other militant Islamist terrorist groups, I think it's largely, I think it's fair to say that it's largely um, the same ideology with minor differences. So they all believe it is their duty to institute a form of governance that is um, entirely based on Islamic law, the Sharia, and um, this state-like entity that um, through which they want to achieve this is called the Caliphate, led by the rightful successor of Muhammad, the Caliph. And to accomplish this political goal, they will employ all uh, available means, including the killing of their perceived enemies. Uh, and they justify this mainly by making use of this tradition uh, of takfir, which is basically to declare a person a non-believer against violence is then uh, permitted. Uh, one central theme that many are familiar with is then is jihad, which terrorists define as holy war. And they say it's an individual duty for every Muslim. And so they've been called jihadists a lot. Um, but I think we have to be careful with that term because jihad can also refer to what's been called the internal struggle against one's own sinful tendencies. And so it has certain holy connotations for all Muslims. And if we just use the term uh, jihadists for terrorists, then we're basically granting them this label of, of being good, righteous Muslims. And I think uh, that, could, that could legitimize them and we wanna, we wanna avoid that. 
Uh, but these terrorists have been quite resourceful when it comes to uh, finding ways to disseminate their ideology and, and, and propagandize. And, and they've written books, they have um, written open letters, they have uh, released fatwas, legal opinions. Um, and then I mentioned the electronic magazines or e-zines. They really use all available platforms, even radio. Um, if you look at the Lebanese Shiite terrorist group Hezbollah, they even have uh, a television channel, Al Manar. So, you know, they're 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 very resourceful. Um, one example that gained notoriety in the past was the sort of the first uh, electronic magazine, Inspire, by Al Qaeda, uh, was exclusively disseminated online in English and obviously aimed to inspire believers to action and um, covered a, a wide range of topics, sometimes more on the tactical level, but also uh, when it came to politics, religion, ideology, um, always sort of invoking a war of civilizations and, and focusing on um, how to uh, denounce uh, America, the great crusader as they uh, call it. Um, they would sometimes even feature Western voices, you know, American scholars, and say, you know, give a, a provide a short quote, and then afterwards they would go back and uh, have, you know, um, provide many of the writings of, of their own ideologues and say, you know, we've, we've sort of had a fair debate now, and we've won the debate because they feature their own sites so much more heavily. Um, one example for uh, that I could speak of is um, the targeting of civilians. And one of their uh, later issues, they talked about this and they basically said that um, civilians are a target that is okay for them because they are so-called combatant disbelievers and they must be fought. Must be fought. Um, they apply this category very broadly and they basically say that any non-Muslim man uh, is a legitimate target because fighting is not restricted only by military personnel, you know, those who hold weapons and fight, the meaning is broader and it includes all adult men who are able to fight even who are able to fight even if they did not fight so um you know and isis followed that same model they had e-zines in themselves now you have which is a newsletter and, and they're quite sophisticated um gruesome content you know the very very vile uh, stuff in there um but they 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 don't just use Easings, they use all kinds of material, video, radio, graphics, news, um, the old and new media. And with ISIS especially, you could say that um, their success in recruiting you know, international fighters can be uh, attributable to, to their propaganda campaign, for sure. Um, they have different types of narratives. So they would have political topics, uh, you know, defending Islam against uh, external attack is a, is a very common one but they make use of takfir, jihad, uh, those things. And um, with ISIS especially, they also had a, a large part with sort of this personal narrative where they uh, leaned on this sense of adventure and, um, and even, you know, sort of this appetite for brutality and sexual fantasies even. So, you know, that's a bit of an, an overview of their, of, of their ideology and their propaganda efforts. I know that you hit on this a little bit, um, but just kind of a follow-up question to that. Could you explain uh, a little bit more the typical narratives that militant Islamists use in their propaganda efforts? Yeah, so that's that's what um, what I was speaking to just a little bit ago. So the the um, they would use this on Facebook or Twitter. They would have all kinds of platforms that they would use, and these narratives um, are 
or sort of a um, a utopian vision often that they would go to. So with the caliphate, um, they said they had this certain sense of brotherhood that they would um, um, that you could have in the caliphate, and it's almost it's really utopian in a sense, you know. And and um, with with ISIS compared to Al Qaeda, it was they're they're much more um, there's sort of there's no um, fault within themselves. So like Al Qaeda was a little bit more um, on the uh, careful side, you could say. ISIS, there is there is there is just gruesome content. There's no admissions of any weakness, um, and so they would go into these political military uh, narratives um, as well as the re religious idea ideological, but as I mentioned, also the social personal and. Um, and were really quite successful in, in, in the propaganda, especially early on, 2014, 2015. Yeah, I really appreciate your answer to that question. I, I think it's so important um, when looking at terrorist usage of propaganda that we understand what exactly it is that we're aiming to counter and kind of having a better understanding of the tactics that they employ. Uh, just my third question for you is, what are some of the best arguments that we can make against terrorist propaganda? And what are those messages that we need to get across? Yes, well, when we talk about um, the types of messages that we want to send, I think it's first important that we understand, you know, um, who we're sending the messages to, right? So knowing who the target audience is, is very important. And um, you know, one approach that was criticized in the early 2000s was that the United States um, first tried to highlight the openness of Americans and didn't really realize that this wasn't helpful when it came to certain issues like you know, identity crisis among Muslim youth, you know, that didn't really defeat much to, um, that didn't really uh, add much to defeating militant Islamism. Um, this is something that Farah Pandit, a former special representative to Muslim communities, has documented well. Um, so know, knowing who you're trying to reach and then what our objective is with our messaging is key. And uh, one example of an important message um, is to refute the notion of Islam under attack. And this is uh, one argument that has been made, uh, but not increasing, not, not enough, I think. And um, I think, in fact, you can make the argument that, uh, that it's terrorists, really, that are killing Muslims uh, in outrageous numbers. Um, most of the terrorist attacks since September 11 have occurred in Muslim countries, and most of the victims have been Muslims. It's undeniable. So um, it's, it's uh, not non-combatant Westerners primarily. It's, it's, it's primarily Muslims that are being targeted. Um, so what we want to do is, is, is go against these, these false narratives, you know, like the West is against Islam. Um, and you could use that to, to do that. So um, one other way would be to uh, break the terrorist claim to Islamic authenticity. So they, these, these guys claim that they're providing, you know, the authentic and true model for, for Muslims. And uh, much of their appeal really rests on this uh, uh, claim to authority. And I think one way to break this would be to uh, go into the authenticity and credibility and say, is that really the case? Because oftentimes these guys don't really practice what they preach, if you will, you know, and that provides uh, opportunities for exploitation. Um, if you look, example, for example, at the um, uh, editor of Inspire, the Al-Qaeda magazine, that was an, uh, uh, an American citizen named Anwar al-Awlaki, um, who, you know, was constantly attacking America for its impurity, but when he lived in a Washington, D.C. suburb in the early 2000s, 
uh, was frequently visiting prostitutes. You know, that's basically a rhetorical assist, you could say, you know, and it's one that should have been used better to discredit the man and his ideology. You saw some of this um, in how President Trump tried to discredit ISIS when he described the U.S. raid that killed Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the self-declared caliph of ISIS, uh, ISIS in, October, in October of last year. So he said something along the lines of he ran into a tunnel and he was crying all the way, uh, and then he detonated his suicide vest and killed the children that he had with him you know, to discredit this tough guy image and point out how vile the man was in killing children. So ridicule, I think, is an underappreciated weapon that we could use because it, it can strip uh, the terrorists of their prestige and get rid of this image that they're invincible, right? Um, and that can then make it easier to attack their line of argument when you point out their hypocrisy. But of course, we can't just point out their vile ideology um, that's underlying the terrorism. We must also um, provide positive alternatives and, and, and better lifestyles uh, to advocate, right? To advocate for the cause of peace in the world. And a major positive alternative idea is to push, with, to, you know, that we could use to push back against uh, the nature of militant Islamism is the concept of human rights. And this is something that Professor Daniels at IWP uh, is attempting with his organization, Good of All, you know, to the idea being to spread hope based on our common human dignity. Something that I'm wondering is, who are the best messengers in this effort? For example, can non-Muslim Westerners be efficient messengers when it comes to countering militant Islamist narratives? And just kind of a follow-up question to that, how should we go about getting our message across? Or in other words, what are the best platforms that should be utilized? Yeah, so um, that's, a, that's a good point. I think it's a fair one. Um, it's, of course, extremely important um, that the message comes from someone who's credible. And um, I would say in many cases, non-Muslim voices, in fact, do not have that credibility. Um, but often there are good mess messages out there by credible messengers. Uh, they just aren't being amplified. So I brought up um, this example of how, how uh, Islamists will say, um, Islam is under attack uh, by the West. And you know, th this is basically uh, a, a false argument because it is the terrorists who are really targeting Muslims. Um, the, this, this argument, you see this all the time, the statistics are undeniable how many Muslims have uh, died in terrorist attacks. Um, and, and this is actually an argument that works well when ISIS defectors make it. So, um, you know, disillusioned ISIS fighters who have um, defected and have, you know, sort of in their, in their um, surveys and answers they have given afterwards, have, you know, they have listed this as a, you know, the infighting with other Sunni groups and, and the killing of other Muslims. That's one of the main reasons for why they left the group. So they have said it's not ISIS that's protecting Muslims, they're, they're killing Muslims. You know, that's a very good argument we can make that hasn't been made enough, I think. So former extremists are good messengers because they have the credibility. Um, one example is uh, Majid Nawaz, a, uh, a, a British man who used to be an Islamist who um, turned sort of his, turned his life around after questioning the leadership of his group, Hezb Tahrir, when he realized that it was always the leaders um, that were asking the little guy to sacrifice themselves, it was never themselves, you know, and so now he has a, a, a foundation, the Quilliam Foundation, where he 
aims to counter extremism and inspire change for, for better. And I think uh, former extremists, if they have renounced their ideology, they, they can be good messengers. And another example would be family members. You know, emotional appeals by family members can be a powerful tool in this, um, especially by mothers, as we've seen as when it comes to ISIS. Um, there's one quite moving example that was shown on Saudi television where a young ISIS defector described how his mother was, you know, convincing him over the phone, crying on the phone, asking him to return home after having joined the terrorist group. And there's now a whole movement of, of several movements of mothers who are trying to, you know, provide warnings to others and say, you know, this is, uh, this is really dangerous and, and here's what can happen, you know. Um, and then one other thing that I'm always sort of struck by is you know, you hear this argument a lot sometimes that Muslims around the world are not doing enough to denounce those who commit atrocious acts of violence in the name of their religion. Um, but I wonder sometimes if it perhaps the question shouldn't be if those Muslims who do condemn terrorism, if they're given the proper attention. For example, we, when it comes to, to ISIS, there was an excellent publication in 2014 called The Letter to Baghdadi which was a uh, theological refutation of a sermon that uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the um, self-declared caliph, had delivered. And in this letter, the, the, there was about 120 internationally respected Muslim scholars, and they go through step-by-step step in several languages, the, the arguments that he makes, and, and really take them apart quite impressively. And it's all based on the Quran and the Hadith. Um, and they even use arguments that are, you know, that, that non-Muslims wouldn't dare make. Uh, and said things like, you know, those who spill Muslim blood um, won't see paradise, but have hell to fear. So again, basically, you know, the killing of innocent people will not lead to heaven, but to hell. That's something that we in the secular West, of course, you know, have been disregarding religion for quite some time now. And so religious arguments, uh, we, we sort of fail to comprehend their relevance. But terrorists who are willing to blow themselves up and, you know, because they genuinely believe that such an act will reward them with paradise, they're, they're convinced by, by what they perceive to be their religion and ideology. And so the aim should be to, to sow doubt and break this chain of justification for violence. And this, you know, this sort of language, if we cite authoritative and authentic Islamic voices, um, with that, perhaps we can make them fear the consequences of their actions. Um, but Again, though, the, the world barely took notice of this letter. Uh, there was very little uh, media attention for this. And um, so if we, you know, if we want to succeed in this, um, if, we, if Westerners, in fact, don't have the credibility, then we have to be able to promote and amplify those voices, you know, Muslim arguments that, that do have the credibility, but the credibility, but that means that we have to be aware of this in the first place. So my next question for you is, when it comes to the field of public diplomacy and strategic influence, do we need to make structural changes in the United States? We used to have the USIA or the United States Information Agency. In your opinion, does something like this need to be reestablished? Yeah, that's a question that comes up from time to time. Um, U.S. Information Agency was you know, specifically devoted to public diplomacy and you know, that you could perhaps make the case that there's been a lack of clarity and maybe purpose in how to engage in the battle of ideas since the end of the Cold War. Um, sort of began to think that we wouldn't need uh, strategic messaging as much anymore. Uh, 2017, the Global Engagement Center within the State Department uh, was then put in charge of these efforts to counter propaganda and, and disinformation. 
But then there was, you know, I saw reports that Trump administration in the beginning didn't spend all the money that should have been used for it. So there's been some issues. Uh, then in 2018, you had the Broadcasting Board of Governors that became the US Agency for Global Media uh, with regards to public diplomacy. But I'm, re I'm reminded of Professor Lord of the Naval War College that uh, once said that it's unrealistic to expect the State Department to undertake the full range um, of public diplomacy because it doesn't have this, this culture of strategic influence, it's sort of antithetical to it, and um, that USIA should be reinvented. Um, you know, whether you call it the US Public Diplomacy Agency or the Office of Strategic Narratives, I think the United States does continue to fulfill an important role, uh, leadership role, when it comes to countering terrorism, and it should step up to the plate and, and revitalize its public diplomacy and strategic influence uh, game. And perhaps you could start with a uh, special working group in the National Security Council to sort of establish, you know, what should this look like? Are we, uh, is the current system the best? Um, you know, bring together senior agency representatives and, um, yeah, you know, that's breaking bureaucratic China is, uh, is not necessarily easy, but it might be necessary. Robert Satloff said this once. Um, but I think it's especially important also when you think about great power competition vis-a-vis -vis China and Russia. So this is becoming a larger issue, not just with regards to terrorism. And I guess my final question for you is, you know, in the world today, we're seeing um, so many things that people are worried about. I mean, we're in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so my question for you is, is this topic of countering ideological support for terrorism relevant today when it seems that there's so many other things that we're worried about? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, one thing I think that we can see for sure is that while we may be preoccupied with fighting this pandemic and then also the, you know, we're dealing with this global economic, economic fallout, um, ISIS and other groups, they're in no way stopping their efforts to propagandize and use this pandemic as an opportunity to exploit, essentially. Um, you know, this chaos that we're all in right now, it's definitely an opportunity for them. And uh, you saw this recently in their newsletter um, where they described the pandemic as a, you know, just punishment, a torment against the crusader nations. And, you know, you, ha you have to see this too. There is the pandemic is definitely affecting the international efforts um, to contain ISIS after the military defeat last year. In Iraq, NATO, for example, announced that it would suspend training for uh, two months due to the pandemic. And the uh, United Kingdom even said that it would scale back its troop deployment. And ISIS is using this to you know, play, play, it, play it as a victory of sorts. Um, but it is also, you know, we talk about what are, when you talk about what are good messages, what are ways to counter this propaganda, um, when we talk about the uh, credibility part, authenticity part, um, one example that was almost comical that I saw recently was a group uh, called Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which is a, uh, an Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria. They were putting out health guidelines for their followers, and they were basically citing the American CDC. So, you know, there's, there's the hypocrisy piece that, um, you know, that, that, that provides an opening. Um, so, yeah, Islamist terrorist groups are not just using this for new opportunities for a resurgence you know, or to increase attacks. They're definitely um, using this for propaganda purposes too. And I think one problem that we see in general is now that we're, we're sort of in a period that, is, that you could describe as um, counterterrorism fatigue. 
And there are lots of issues that we're dealing with, especially COVID-19 right now, and then uh, great, power, great power competition with China uh, is, the, is of the highest priority. But I think counterterrorism, especially countering ideological support for terrorism, uh, hasn't been enough of a priority, and it, and it should be, especially now. And one area that we're, is one area where we do need to see change, I think, is especially funding. Um, the United States spends, I think it's about 12 times more on its military than it does on diplomacy and foreign assistance. And so um, we definitely need to dedicate more funds to, to the non-kinetic forms of counterterrorism, uh, counter especially countering ideological support for terrorism. And um, I think that's especially the case now when at a time where other types of engagement like troop deployments, et cetera, um, are negatively affected by the pandemic. Well, Tobias, that is all the questions that I have for you today. Again, thank you for joining us on the IWP podcast and discussing this very important topic of what we can do to push back ideological support for militant Islamism. I'm sure it's one that our listeners will find very informative, and we really just appreciate you sharing your research with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu.